So this week, I had a really great week. I had the opportunity and privilege of going to Mount Angel Abbey. It's an abbey about an hour south of Portland, and I was there uh, Monday through Thursday at an intensive course on spiritual direction. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful week. Um, you may have heard of spiritual direction. For a lot of us, that's a new, a new term, a new concept. Um, I learned about spiritual direction about five years ago, and it has been life-changing in my walk with God. It has been such a, a gift to me personally. And spiritual direction is basically sitting down with someone who offers the gift of listening, the gift of holding space for you as you process your faith. And it's, it's a space that is filled with, with prayer and attentiveness and intentional attentiveness to God. And for me, it has been such a place of growth in my, in my journey as I, I've been meeting with two different um, spiritual directors. One is a group spiritual direction, uh, once a month. And I've been meeting with, uh, uh, a, per, a spiritual director just one on one again once a month and has grown my self awareness in all the internal dynamics. Like what is going on inside of me? You know, cause sometimes if you're a little bit like me, there's a whole lot going on, but it's hard to untangle. Right? It's hard to, to be able to articulate and to reflect. Here's what's happening inside of me. Here's how I'm responding. Here's how I'm reacting. And also, in the midst of all that, to be able to articulate and to identify, here's the voice of, of Sarah. Here's the voice of Satan. And here's the voice of God. Here's the movement of God in my life. So I am really, really excited about this. If you want to learn more about spiritual direction, come and talk to me, and um, I will I will tell you more. This is a nine-month program that I just started, and I'm looking forward to that. It was really fun uh, to actually be at Mount Angel Abbey. I took a picture of the church while I was there, and they have like they have like a whole compound, um, and they have this gorgeous guest house for their retreats and their classes and their guests. And uh, it's so fun to be surrounded by people of faith from all different traditions. And that, I find the diversity in that always surprises me a little bit. I'm like, huh, tell, tell me your perspective on this because things come up and it's like, I don't follow. Tell me more. And I find such richness in the diversity there. And then also being able to sit with people and know that we are on the same team. <laughs> we are in the same community. Because we are following God. Um, there's also some, a, a fun picture I took just for, just for grins. The next one. Um, I had to use the elevator a couple of times. And if you can't read it, it says, for immediate assistance, call. And then in small lettering there, it says, oh God, come to my assistance. Lord, make haste to help me. And I loved that. That, that makes me laugh every time I get in that elevator. So I just wanted to tell you a little bit about, about spiritual direction. I would love to have more conversations on that. 
As we continue, we're going to dive into another prophet. We've been talking about the prophets for a couple of weeks now. We, we did an introductory lesson. You're welcome to go back and listen to just how to read the prophets. What are the prophets all about? Because it's a genre we often don't read in scripture. And then Micah spoke last week on, on Jonah. Today, we're going to go back to the prophets, and we're going to be in the book of Amos. And the prophets, I just want to orient us to what we're, we're about to read. The prophets reminded people of their mutual partnership with God. They reminded people of the covenant they had made with God. And there are three main themes or categories or, or movements, so to speak, that come up over and over as we read the prophets. And that is... Um, uh, an accusation of sin, like you have sinned. Here's, here's what's going on. A call to repentance, and then a proclamation of God's justice. Say so there's sin, you need to repent, and God's justice is coming. And we're going to see that today as we dive in to the book of Amos. So let's start off Amos 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekio, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. So the author here of Amos is this guy named Amos who was a shepherd and a fig farmer. He, so there were prophets that were the official prophets of the land. There were prophets for the kings, and Amos was not one of those. He was a shepherd and a fig farmer that God had called to prophesy. prophesy. He lived in the southern kingdom, so this was a time in Israel's history. There was uh, the united monarchy, so when... Um, you had Saul and David and Solomon. Israel as a whole was united. And then after Solomon died, when his son became king, um, the, the kingdom split. And so you had Judah in the south and you had Israel in the north. So this is during the time of the divided kingdom. And Amos lived right on the border, in the southern part, but right on the border going into northern Israel. And God called Amos to go up to northern Israel um, in Bethel and to prophesy. The social and political context of Amos is really important for us to, to understand. This was a time of great prosperity in Israel. This was a time in which um, the, the, the king had expanded the land. There was Great prosperity, a whole lot of wealth, and also a time in which there are temples to idols all through Israel. When the great split had happened, King Jeroboam I, who, who was king of Israel, actually cast two large uh, calf idols. Sound familiar? If, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, this has happened before. And he cast these idols and he set up these temples and, he's, and he told the people, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And as generation after generation passed, because the split happened about 150 years before Amos, People kept going to these temples and worshiping these gods. And yet, it was a time of great um, wealth and prosperity and political strength. 
So the book of Amos, that we're going to be looking at parts of it, is a collection, an anthology, so to speak, of the sermons and the visions and the poems spoken by the prophet Amos. So it wasn't that he said all this in one setting. Rather, he prophesied for a long time, numerous times, and then someone else later went and kind of collected them. So this is kind of like a summary of his words. As we, as we spoke of a couple weeks ago, this is poetry. So there's vivid metaphor and language in here. You know, it matters what genre we're reading, how we read it, right? Um, and so it's important for us when we see really graphic language, and we'll see if you read through the book of Amos, there's really graphic um, images in here. It's poetry. Think of it as spoken word. You know, like it's meant to, to shock you, to startle you, to get your attention. If you'd like to... Um, dive a little bit deeper into Amos, I highly encourage you to go online to Bible Project, and they actually have these little um, eight to ten minute videos that give an overview of the books, and he does a really, really good job of kind of giving you a good summary of Amos. So I would encourage you to go to that and to listen to the book of Amos. So as we as we look at Amos, um, I want to start... <sighs> in a hard place, (laughs) because we're going to start by looking at Amos's accusation of sin. So he, God has called him, go to Israel, preach these sermons. And by the way, they're not very fun sermons. (laughs) They're really hard to listen to. And that's where we're going to start. In fact, the book of Amos, if you, if you go and read it, it starts with judgments on the nations around Israel, and it's kind of like this circle that keeps getting closer and closer and closer until finally Amos speaks these words to Israel, who's supposed to be modeling what relationship with God looks like for all the other nations. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods. The gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor, as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. And so Amos calls out two primary sins of Judah and Israel. One is idolatry, and two is social injustice. So the sin of idolatry, this false and hypocritical religion, he says, you have rejected God. You have rejected the law. You've rejected the covenant. You've mixed idol worship in with worshiping me. And that just doesn't work for God. 
It says, you've been led astray by false gods. And then Amos says, you, he calls out the sin of social injustice. And this is a really interesting um, one for me. The litmus test throughout scripture of whether or not Israel is following God is how they treat the poor. And I think that's a really interesting question for us to ask ourselves today, both individually and as a community. How are the poor being treated? And here in Amos 2, Amos says that, that the, they're, you're selling the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. It's called debt slavery. So if, if the poor couldn't pay the debt that they owed, then they could actually become a slave to pay that debt off. That you're trampling the poor, you're denying justice. And what's interesting is if you look back to the law, if you look back to the covenant that Israel is supposed to be living by, God makes provisions for the poor and the widow and the immigrant, right? Those are the three large vulnerable groups in ancient Israel. And God makes provisions for them that they would be taken care of no matter what. And so Amos comes and says, you have rejected God. You're trampling on the poor. Because in order to take care of the vulnerable in the society, it required that those with resources, those with power, it requires those people to use their resources and power in godly ways to uphold the covenant and to value following God more than their wealth. So Amos comes out swinging. <laughs> like he doesn't hold any punches. And he says, this is what's going on. We're going to jump ahead to Amos chapter 5. And you're going to see uh, this accusation of sin, the call to repentance and God's justice, like all three of those movements, they're, they're all mixed in here in Amos chapter 5. In verse 7, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then verse 10, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. And so Amos is saying, you're not doing what's right. And so he calls them to repentance. Amos 5, starting in verse 14. Seek good. It's really simple. I love that. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Jumping ahead to verse 21. This is God speaking. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
So after the accusation of sin, Amos calls them to repent and says, here's what God says. See good, love good, maintain justice in the courts, because these are the things that reflect the character of God. This is what God is about. This is who God is. And so if you're to be the people of God, this is what you need to be about. There's a really poignant line in here um, in verse 21 where God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. The sacrifices that the Israelites were supposed to offer to God are described in the law as these fragrant aromas to God, a a smell that is pleasing to God. And you see that strong, strong language in here that they've now become a stench to God, that the, the music, the worship is just noise. So why? Why? Does God feel this way? It's because they're going through the motions of obedience and worship to God at the temple and then not living it out. So they go to the temple and they follow all the rules they're supposed to follow at the temple, but their lives aren't reflecting the just and good God they're claiming to serve. And friends, I think that's a really, at least for me, that's a really important thing for me to think about. Is my life reflecting the faith that I'm claiming? We know that God is not interested in a once a week sort of religion. I mean, think about our commitments. Um, I think about um, being married to Micah. I go like this because he's normally right here, right? Uh, I think about being married to Micah. And if, you know, in marriage, I, I said to him, I'm saying to him, I'm committed to you. We're in this together. We're going to walk together. We're going to do life together. I'm going to love you. And what if I said once a week? <laughs> it's not quite the same. It doesn't. If I'm, if I'm married to him, if I'm doing life with him, if I'm committed to him, it has to be all, I have to be all in, right? I can't just do that once a week. And that's what God is saying here to the Israelites. And so Amos calls the Israelites to repent, to live out the covenant, to live out the faith, to reflect God's character at the temple, yes, but also in their homes and in their workplaces. And then verse 24, the famous beautiful line. I didn't even know was scripture the first time I heard it. The first time I heard this line, I remember I was sitting at my little desk. I was homeschooled. I I grew up in Africa and I was sitting at my little desk and I was um, doing a lesson on uh, the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King. And that was the first time I heard this line, and I was shocked when, I, when my dad told me that, I thought, you know, that's scripture, right? And I'm like, what? Um, in, in the Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech. He says, no, no, we are not satisfied. We'll not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And here in verse 24, but let justice roll on 
like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. True worship of God, walking in covenant relationship with God, looks like justice and righteousness in our lives and in our communities. Now, those can mean, those terms can mean different things to different people. So let's define them. So we have a shared definition. Righteousness is the standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter what social differences. Right, equitable relationships. To be righteous is to be in right, equitable relationships between people. And justice is the concrete actions we take in order to live in right relationships. The concrete actions we take in in order to live in right relationships, often involving correcting injustices, right? When there isn't right, equitable, fair relationships, then we, we must correct them, and that's justice. And so this image of justice rolling down like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream, I love it. I love it. I've sat next to the little stream up at our family cabin many, many times and just watched the water go by, wondering how many gallons of water <laughs> was going by, you know? like, And it just never ends. Like it keeps coming and you watch some more and it, and it keeps coming. And I get this image of this giant stream, flood levels, this giant river. Let justice roll on. Righteousness, like this never failing stream. That is what God is about in this world. And that is what we are invited to as Jesus followers. So we see the accusation of sin in Amos. We see a call to repentance in Amos. And then we also see God's justice being proclaimed in the book of Amos. Amos says God will bring about justice. And this is going to play out in two different ways. And we've talked about justice before, but the two primary biblical definitions of justice. One is retributive justice. And in scripture, when it talks about justice, about one out of ten times, It's talking about retributive justice, and that's basically punishment or consequence for sin. So one out of ten times, that's what Scripture is talking about. A lot of those times are in the prophets, okay? So we're going to see that quite a bit in the prophets. And nine out of ten times in Scripture, justice is referring to restorative justice. And that is God's desire to restore right relationships, and, and it's interesting, and even in Amos, you see this where even the retributive justice, the, the punishment and the consequence of God that God is bringing on his people, the goal is restoration. The goal is that people would turn back to God. So retributive justice, Amos 3, starting in verse 11. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones and a piece of ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Oh my goodness, like what descriptive 
metaphor, <laughs> language, right? Like it's shocking to see the retributive justice. And Assyria will come and will uh, destroy Samaria, the capital of Israel, um, in, in about 50 years after Amos. And so we see this consequence of sin is great, great suffering. And yet that's the ol- not the only form of justice that we see in Amos. Amos 9, starting in verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as, rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnants of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. I will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So God says restoration is coming. Yes, there is consequence, but God will rebuild. Because God's heart is always to restore, to rebuild, to recreate um, humanity and societies so that they function in just and righteous ways. The Old Testament is full of this concept of God's shalom, God's peace, which is a, a wholeness and a wellness in which people can flourish. So in the book of Amos, we see how Amos calls Israel out for idolatry and injustice. We see how he's calling them to repentance, to live justly and righteously. And we hear Amos proclaim God's justice is coming, both the consequence for sin and also the restoration after those consequences. So what do we take from this? Where do we go from here? I want to remind us that as we read the prophets, we're reading from the vantage point of knowing Jesus. Okay? We're reading from the vantage point of knowing Jesus. So how's the, how does Jesus play into this? How's the character of God that we see here, the character of God that is about justice and righteousness, how is that seen in Jesus? Well, Jesus' life was characterized by compassion and care for the vulnerable, the poor, and many other other people that society has discarded. Jesus treated with dignity and love. He touched the leopard before healing him. He healed many people. He invited women to learn and follow him, which was unheard of in that day. He called people of different socio and economic backgrounds and people with different, like drastically different political views at the time to be his disciples and to, to live in community and, and to work together. We see Jesus model what it looks like to live a life that is about justice and righteousness. And Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. 
and how he walked, and yet he took the ultimate consequence and punishment for humanity's sin on himself. So this is the idea of retributive justice. He took that on himself so that those who claim to follow Jesus wouldn't have to. And then he offers new life. And in offering us new life, he heals, he makes whole, he gives us hope and makes us alive again that we might live out God's love that's restorative justice. And as Jesus walked this earth, he, he talked about justice and righteousness all the time. He demonstrated it, and he also taught it. In Matthew 5, verse 9, uh, verse 6, in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I mean, hunger and thirst, the, our need as, as humans to drink water and to eat food, right? Like that is like a core thing. Like we have to do that. And Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right, equitable relationships, relationships filled with mutual respect, compassion, dignity, and flourishing. Thirst for those. And he spoke harshly to those who the religious leaders who didn't do that. He spoke harshly to them in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I think he took lessons from the prophets as far as like imagery, <laughs> like vivid imagery, right? Um, Jesus is saying, you've got to live what you preach. And lastly, I'll read Matthew 25. It's part of the parable of, of the sheep and the goat. Jesus invites the righteous to come to him. Those who took care of him, took care of Jesus in Jesus's time of need. And when he says this, here's, here's what's uh, their response in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you? Uh, hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger or invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. May we follow Jesus's example. May we be a people of justice and righteousness. May we see the face of Jesus in every person we meet and respond accordingly. We are invited, friends, to be people who carry out justice and righteousness. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you for your invitation. We thank you for the example of Jesus. 
Lord, as we, as we think and look at justice and righteousness, it is so countercultural. It is so different than what we see all around us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to have this at the forefront of our minds, that every conversation, every interaction would be from this place of knowing you as a God of justice and a God of righteousness, a God who invites us to love, invites us to show compassion, invites us to lift each other up and to live in, in right, equitable relationships. Holy Spirit, guide us and teach us to walk as you walk. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.